This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, November 17th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court recently threw out a claim of qualified immunity by prison officials. The case was an egregious example of government abuse of an inmate. So is it the opening to throw out the doctrine that's used so often to protect corrupt or incompetent government officials from civil liability? Cato's Jay Schweiker says, don't get your hopes up just yet. For people who follow qualified immunity closely, the Supreme Court's decision here, should it really give them hope? It doesn't seem like it's all that significant. Well, I think it's more significant than uh, it looks if you just read the opinion on its own. I mean, I think, you know, the way that I framed this when I wrote up my blog post about it is that um, since the Supreme Court created the clearly established law standard in 1982, uh, which is which is the defining feature of what qualified immunity is today. It has decided over 30 qualified immunity decisions. And up until this recent case, only twice has the court ever held that uh, public action, public officials actions violated clearly established law. In almost every single case that the Supreme Court has decided over the last several decades, what it has done is reversed lower courts that denied qualified immunity. In other words, it has been consistently sending the message to lower courts to ratchet up how uh, demanding the clearly established law standard is. And lower courts have gotten the message. Um, Qualified immunity has become a more and more powerful defense over time. Describe the the elements of this case and uh, how the court reached that conclusion. Sure. So this case involves, I think, some of the most egregious facts that I have ever seen in any judicial case of any sorts. Um, So the uh, civil rights plaintiff here, um, Trent Taylor, uh, was uh, incarcerated and moved to a psychiatric ward. And he was kept for about a week in utterly inhumane conditions. Uh, in the first cell that he was kept in, the cell was covered uh, floor to ceiling with the feces of the previous occupant who had you know, smeared his feces all over the entire cell and included, including packing his feces into the water faucet such that, uh, you know, Mr. Taylor couldn't drink or eat food for fear of contamination for several days. Um, he was then moved to another cell that was kept at freezing temperatures where a, a drain in the floor was backed up, causing raw sewage to get pumped up into the cell so that he was forced to sleep in sewage and gave himself basically a, a urinary tract infection uh, by trying not to urinate in there because he didn't want to add that to the sewage. Those facts are uh, awful and egregious. What was the court's c- conclusion? Um, well, so when he when when Mr. Taylor brought this case up um, through the lower courts, uh, the Fifth Circuit um, <laughs> granted qualified immunity to the public officials in this case because they said, well, you know, these are this this looks really bad, and uh, we have previously held that you know keeping prisoners in cells covered in human filth for up to a month is unconstitutional. But, you know, we've never had a case where he was someone was kept in those conditions for only six days. So that's different. So the law is not clearly established. And the Supreme Court reversed that. 
um, they they did what's called a GVR, a grant, vacate and remand. So they didn't uh, they're not going to hear oral argument on this case. They just decided it based on the briefing. They said the lower court, you know, did not apply the qualified immunity doctrine correctly. And, you know, basically said, you know, you're going to have to do an analysis as to the as to which individual defendants committed this violation. But this conduct clearly makes out a violation of clearly established law, even without a case exactly on point. So two two thoughts on that. One, is it notable that the court didn't hear oral argument here and uh, decided it without that? And uh, two, that it seems that they've asked the lower courts to do some work. Yeah, I think that's I think it's yeah, I think I think it is notable. I mean, for two reasons. One, it it speaks to how egregious this violation was and how I you know, for, I mean, frankly ridiculous it is that the lower court didn't find this to be a, a case of an obvious constitutional violation. So it speaks to how clear it was, how easily the court could resolve this without oral argument. But on the other side, it also means, you know, th- this was one of the cert petitions um, that was asking the Supreme Court to reconsider qualified immunity entirely. This was one of the cases where Cato filed one of these cross-ideological briefs on behalf of about a dozen other public interest groups um, asking the court to hear this. And of course, we know from you know the end of the last the court's uh, term this past June that the court was not interested in taking up that fundamental question. And so, you know, once I didn't expect them to hear, but once again, they declined to take up that fundamental question. So I think you can you can read this as the court trying to find something of a of a middle ground. Um, they're not going to take up the question of whether qualified immunity itself should be reconsidered. But I think that this this decision indicates that the court, the justices are aware of how bad it's gotten, and they are trying to clarify that clearly established law doesn't always require cases with exact facts. It depends upon how obvious the constitutional violation is. The underlying question is simply, you know, would any reasonable person in the defendant's position know that they were violating someone's constitutional rights? When I first read your piece, my my first thought was maybe the court is trying to find a backdoor way to begin raising broader questions among uh, the justices about this issue, uh, understanding that they are going to continue receiving these uh, requests for review uh, on a regular basis, and this is just a way to keep the door opened very slightly, and perhaps the court is embarrassed on behalf of their uh, previous justices. Is there anything to that at all? I expect that the justices are embarrassed um, because I think all of the justices today, to varying degrees, but Elena Kagan has said we're all textualists now. Right. I mean, all of the justices on the court today, when they're interpreting federal statutes, take as the starting place what the text of the statute says. And if that's clear, that's the end of it. You know, I don't think a single justice on the court today would come up with qualified immunity if the question were new. Um, but, you know, how to approach misguided precedent is is a difficult question that the justices are divided on. So I think they are embarrassed by it. I think they're aware of the problem. Um I I still don't see it. I don't think it's especially likely that, you know, this case is the first of three or four cases that leads to eliminating qualified immunity judicially. Um, I think if the court were going to, you know, go down that path, 
we would have seen a different result in, in all of the cases that were denied this past June. I think what's more likely, at least for the sort of foreseeable future, is the court saying, look, we're not going to fix qualified immunity. If you want to eliminate it, that has to be done legislatively. But we are going to clarify that this, you have to find a case with exactly similar facts or you lose, is not what we meant. And it's and lower courts need to stop doing that. Um which is, you know, I don't think a complete solution by any means. And I think it remains urgent for legislatures to address this. But in the meantime, it is better than nothing uh, because there has been confusion and division among the lower courts about just how demanding this standard is. And it matters whether uh, cases of obvious constitutional violations like Mr. Taylor's have a chance of going forward or not. And now they do. We might be heartened a little bit uh, on behalf of Mr. Taylor and on behalf of ending qualified immunity that uh, the court uh, rejected uh, the lower court's opinion. Uh, But even very recently, this is not the only case that they have uh, considered. Yes, that's right. Um, Even this term uh, a few weeks ago in in mid-October, um, the court denied a cert petition in a case called Hamner versus Burles, um, which was another case uh, where, where Cato filed amicus briefs. Um, and this case, which was out of the Eighth Circuit, um, raised some some important but na- narrower questions than whether qualified immunity itself should be reconsidered. The first was um, whether qualified immunity is an affirmative defense that the public officials themselves have to assert or whether it's something that federal courts can raise sua sponte, even if the parties don't bring it up. Um, and the second question was whether the Supreme Court should reconsider its decision in Pearson versus Callahan, which was the 2009 case where the Supreme Court said uh, lower courts don't actually have to decide the merits question. They can just say the law is not clearly established and dismiss on qualified immunity without deciding the law in the first place. So those are two important questions that are, you know, not should QI be reconsidered entirely, but how is this going to work? And we were somewhat optimistic the court might consider those questions, but unfortunately it denied uh, the cert petition in that case. Jay Schweikert is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.